Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We have got an incredible program planned for you this evening. Tonight we're going to be speaking to Dr. Daniel Amen, and his work is world-renowned. He has been working in the study of healing the brain, scanning the brain for many years. Yesterday we looked at the psychology of anxiety, panic attacks, and depression. So today we'll look at the neuroscience of this and see what we can unwrap. This is going to be a show that you want to hear until the very end. So sit back, grab a drink, and enjoy this conversation. The Human Experiences in Session. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest for today is Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen is an expert on brain health who has made his life's work merging the disciplines of psychiatry and neuroscience to better understand how our brains work. Dr. Amen is a double board certified psychiatrist. He is a 10-time New York Times bestselling author. He is widely regarded as the foremost expert in brain scanning. He's scanned roughly 100,000 brains in his career. Discover Magazine named his brain imaging work as one of the top 20 stories in science in 2015. Washington Post calls him the most popular psychiatrist in America. He has been featured on media outlets such as Dr. Phil, Larry King, Time Magazine, Newsweek, the BBC, and now we are welcoming him onto the human experience. Dr. Amen, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time, sir. Welcome to HXP. Thank you so much for having me. I am grateful to have you help me spread the message of brain health. Yes, sir. That's what, that's what it's all about. That's why we're here, right? Um, so, you know, I, I really want to get into your book and I, I want to talk about the brain, but let's, let's start, let's preface this conversation with a little bit of an introduction about, you know, who you are and what you do for anyone that might not know that already. So I am, oh my goodness, when you go, I am, what does that mean? I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a psychiatrist, I look at people's brains, uh, I fell in love with my own brain almost 30 years ago, and since then we've scanned, uh, we've done 160,000 scans on people from 121 countries. And it just completely blew my mind that, you know, I need to take care of the three pounds of fat between my ears because if I don't, my life won't be as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, I, I wanted to change this up a little bit because, I, you know, I think people go right into your work and what you do, but 
I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about your writing process and how that works for you. Because, I mean, when I read that you've written 10, you know, 10 times you've gotten this New York Times bestselling author list, you know, how, how does that process work? How do you get into, you know, writing so I was turned down about by about 30 publishers early in my career. and uh, But when I graduated from medical school, I had a book in me that I wanted to write. It's actually um, being re-released in two weeks called Change Your Brain, Change Your Grades. And um, when I graduated from medical school, I wanted to be a really good psychiatrist and a writer because I found that I loved the process of writing. Hmm. And even though it took me a while to get started, my first national book was published in 1992. Um, you know, it's a matter of doing it. And I write with a pretty clear structure. I always start with, you know, so what's the big idea? And then a table of contents. And then I just sort of build out the table of contents with stories and important uh, points uh, to make. Mm-hmm. And it's all wrapped around stories because people don't remember facts. They remember stories. Sure, sure. So – you know, what is your story? Like, how, how did you decide to pursue this? I mean, there was, there was an early part of your life where you were exposed to the two disciplines that would later become, you know, your career, that of medical imaging and psychiatry. So how did that merge together for you? So I'm one of seven children. Um, I have five sisters. Pray for me. And it was interesting growing up in my family. It's a Lebanese family. And I'm the second son in a Lebanese family, which is a very interesting place to be because the oldest son goes into the family business. The second son gets to do whatever he wants. So actually, it was a blessed place for me. Um, Or today, I might be a grocer. Um, 1972, I turned 18 and the Vietnam War was still going on. And I had a very low draft number, which meant I was likely to be drafted. So I ended up joining so I could pick my job. I became an infantry medic where my love of medicine was born. But about a year into it, I realized two important things about myself. Um, One is I don't like being shot at. It's just I'm not okay with that. Um, And um, when you're an infantry medic, you're shot at a lot. And so I didn't like that. And I didn't like sleeping in the mud. So I got myself retrained as an x-ray technician. And that was pivotal for me because our professors used to say, how do you know unless you look? How do you know unless you look? And – Um, I got out of the army in 1975 and went, finished college, went to medical school. And when I was a second year medical student, someone I loved tried to kill herself. Hmm. And I took her to see a wonderful psychiatrist. And I came to realize if he helped her, which he did, it wouldn't just help her. 
that ultimately it would help her children and even her grandchildren as they would be shaped by someone who was happier and more stable. So I fell in love with psychiatry because I realized it has the potential to change generations of people. But I fell in love with the only medical specialty that virtually never looks at the organ it treats. And that's insane. And so um, it's funny, you know, growing up, my dad had two favorite words. Um, one was bullshit. The second one was no. Hmm. And I found out, you know, as I became a psychiatrist and people go, well, you shouldn't look at the brain. It's not part of our training. It's not part of our tradition. We don't do that. Well, I just felt myself going bullshit. Like, that's crazy. I mean, obviously, as a psychiatrist, the brain is my organ. And uh, in the late 1980s, I started looking at the brain with a study called quantitative EEG, hmm. looking at the electrical activity in the brain. Mm -hmm. And then in 1991, I went to my first lecture on brain SPECT, yes. image S-P-E-C-T, and SPECT looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how the brain works. And from my first scan, I was hooked. It's like, this gives me more information to help my patients. It makes me a better doctor. It decreased stigma, increased compliance, and opened up a whole world of brain health. I have a book coming out next year in March called The End of Mental Illness. And I'm really excited about the book because these things aren't mental, they're brain. And if you don't understand that, you hurt people, get your brain right, and your mind will follow. Mm -hmm. Okay, I love everything that you said. Let's, let's rewind a little bit. You mentioned SPECT imaging. Uh, what is brain SPECT imaging? How does it differ from other uh, scanning methods? I mean, there's MRI, fMRI, uh, PET scans. Uh, so how does SPECT imaging differ from these other methods? So SPECT is a nuclear medicine study, like PET, that looks at blood flow and activity in the brain. PET scans look at glucose metabolism. SPECT looks at blood flow. MRI and CT are structural scans. They look at what the physical structure of the brain looks like. So think of a car engine analogy that an MRI is like looking at what the engine actually looks like. SPECT or PET is looking at the engine when it's turned on. And so MRI of a dead person, uh, a brain MRI, it'll just show the structure of the dead brain. But a SPECT scan of a dead person will show a big hole because there's no blood flow and no activity. Um, it's different than an fMRI. fMRI also looks at blood flow, but the resolution of fMRI is not very good, um, where we're actually getting an inside outlook um, rather than an fMRI is sort of an outside in look. Hmm. Okay, it's fascinating. I mean, so so you're able to you know put someone in in this machine and then have a, a real time look at what's going on in their brain as they're thinking it as you know as it's happening. Right, and Spec basically tells us three things about every area of the brain: is it healthy, is it underactive, or is it overactive, and 
if you don't have that information, I mean, how do you really treat people who have mental health issues if you don't know? And so, unfortunately, you, you know, most mental health professionals fly blind, and and I'm not okay with that. Hmm. Okay. So, so let's get into the details then. I mean, you know, so what does a healthy person's brain look like under this imaging versus someone with anxiety disorder or mental illness or depression? So healthy is full, even symmetrical activity with the highest activity in an area of the brain called the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is in the back bottom part of your brain. It's about 10% of the brain's volume, but it has about half of the brain's neurons. And um, so we typically see that is the most active part of the brain on SPECT. And for example, people have cerebellar problems or might not think as quickly or process information as quickly. They may have more language problems or more emotional problems. Um, obviously, every area of your brain is healthy, but the cerebellum is particularly health important. Right. And it's particularly important, which mm. is why sports are such a good idea for children, because it ha helps them develop their cerebellum. Okay. But not sports that put them at risk for concussions. Right. That we sort of have it backwards in this society where we let children play tackle football or hit soccer balls with their head or ride big horses. Um, we we need to be more thoughtful in protecting children's brains. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, you know, I mean, you've done over 150,000 scans, I think you said, and that's a tremendous amount of just looking at the brain. I mean, was there a feature that you noticed that was the most common, uh, you know, as far as deficiency or ill health? Well, I guess if you ask me, the single most important lesson I learned sure. from scans is that mild traumatic brain injury ruins people's lives and nobody knows about it. That that car accident, the fall off the roof, uh, the concussion playing football, um, falling off a swing, the damage it potentially can do to the brain that then starts a cascade of negative events that really erode a person's sense of happiness and who they are. Um, it's, it's just something that stands out. Your brain is soft about the consistency of soft butter. Your mm -hmm. skull is really hard and has multiple sharp bony ridges. Anything that damages your brain basically damages your life, your ability to be a good dad or a good mom or to be mm -hmm. married, to mm -hmm. manage your money, to be good at school or good at work. You know, all of those are brain functions. And when you hurt it, you hurt your ability to be successful. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but. Uh, you know, just in my personal life, there is someone very important to me that, uh, you know, she was walking at, at work, she fell, she tripped, she didn't put her hands out, suffered a concussion, and, 
that was about eight years ago and it 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 completely changed everything you know that for her that she knew and she struggled quite a lot you know through that time of recovery but something that i noticed as well is that western medicine doesn't seem to be up on concussions and how to treat them do you agree absolutely that we can do such a better job and and we need to because if we don't so many people will continue to suffer so, okay, so let's let's move around a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, there was a TED Talk that you did and you talked about, you know, the most important lessons from 83,000 brain scans at the time that you that you had taken. And, you know, you were looking at illnesses such as ADHD, anxiety, depression, and you were talking about how, you know, there are multiple types of this that um, two pa- patients with the same diagnosis could have radically different brain activity. How does this work? I mean, how is what does it look like? Uh, how does this manifest in the structures of the the brain? Yeah, I love doing that TED talk, and it has almost ten million views now. And. You know, one of the lessons is that things like ADD and anxiety and depression were just, it's its so funny. If you go to the pediatrician and you say, my child can't concentrate, they're distracted, they're disorganized, um, they end up on Adderall or Ritalin mm-hmm. and no one's ever looked at their brain and it's sort of a crapshoot on whether it's going to help them or not. And what our imaging work taught us was, oh, ADD is seven different things. You need to know what type of ADD you have or what type of anxiety or what type of depression or what type of addiction. Or even I wrote a book on obesity. You need to know what your brain type is so that you can target the treatment not to a group of symptoms but to your brain. Mm-hmm. I mean when we're talking about something – you know, as wide ranging as depression, like when someone is diagnosed with depression and it seems like in modern Western medicine, the the sort of, you know, blanket thing to do is throw a bunch of medications at this person until one sort of lands, right? So, you know, like what are we seeing in the brain happening when when you see when you're when you're looking at someone's brain that is depressed or suffers from depression, what are we seeing happening there? Well, it's not one thing. So often we'll see they have low activity in the left front side of the brain. So the left front side is the happy side. And if you damage it, either with trauma or there's just low blood flow to that side of the brain, you're going to struggle more with depression. But sometimes there's too much activity in that part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so to just give everybody an SSRI, serotonin drugs calm down um, activity in the brain. But what if you're starting with low activity? That's just not a good idea. Um, So we believe we should look at your brain before we just start medicating, give you this, give you that, um, because we can often make people worse. Hmm. Okay. So, 
you know, I mean, what is something practical that we can do that we can apply for, you know, someone suffering from anxiety, from panic disorder, from depression, from depression, you know, what is something that they can do actively in your experience? So many things. I mean, there are just so many things. Head to head against antidepressants, exercise has been shown to be equally effective. The first thing you should do if you're depressed is go for a long walk. And Hippocrates said this 400 BC. And if you're still depressed, go for another walk. So people who walk like they're late, 45 minutes, four times a week, have the same response as people who take Prozac over 12 weeks. Um, So exercise. Learn not to believe every stupid thing you think. We call it killing the ants, the automatic negative thoughts that steal your happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, Cognitive behavior therapy and studies head-to-head against antidepressants have been shown to be equally effective. Omega-3 fatty acids in a study from New Zealand was actually found to be more effective than Prozac. So if you're struggling with your mood, exercise, cognitive therapy, don't believe every stupid thing you think, and omega-3 fatty acids, well, that's sort of a simple place to start. Mm -hmm. also want to make sure to get your important health numbers checked because low thyroid, low testosterone, mm-hmm. high C-reactive protein, a measure of inflammation, low omega-3 index, all of those can be associated with depression. And so that's why in the end of mental illness, I talk about get your brain right, your mind will follow. But that's the first thing to do. And think of it like hardware and software Hmm. Mm -hmm. is that you you wouldn't want to fix the software on a computer that has hardware problems. First thing you want to fix is the hardware to make sure that the CPU works right, that there's enough RAM. And if you don't fix the actual physical functioning of the brain, there's no amount of software programming that's going to make it work. And so too often people go to psychotherapy or marital therapy or group therapy and it doesn't work for them and they, and they get demoralized mm-hmm. because it's like, well, it's helping other people. Why isn't it helping me? And it's because we're starting in the wrong place is that we should start by optimizing the physical functioning mm-hmm. of you know, I, I I love what you're saying. I love the the note on exercise that seems so poignant. You know, just go for a walk. It's so simple to you know just do that. Um, but you know, I've 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 struggled from from anxiety in my life and and panic attacks. And I mean, I don't think I know anyone that hasn't struggled with that in some way or some regard. So, I mean, let's let's say you know, let's just put ourselves in that moment. You know, if we go back in our memories, what would you what would your diagnosis be, Dr. Amen? Like I'm having a panic attack. What is the first thing that I should do in the middle of a panic attack? So let me give you six things to do before you do medication. Okay. Um, The first thing, if you're starting to have anxiety, somebody should check your thyroid. Someone should also check your blood sugar because hypoglycemia or high thyroid can clearly trigger 
anxiety issues. So we need to make sure it's not a physical thing and those things are easy to have your family doctor do. Um, the second thing is don't leave a situation where you're anxious because if you leave, the anxiety will start to control you. Mm. Instead, breathe and breathe in a very specific pattern. Three seconds in, six seconds out. Do that 10 times. I mean, it'll take you like a minute. Um, but if you can take twice as long to breathe out as you breathe in, and really slow your breathing down, it triggers an automatic parasympathetic relaxation response in your body. The fourth thing is write down what you're thinking just to evaluate whether or not it's true. So I had an interview on CNN. It was my first one on national television. Um, it was 1989. And I'm sitting in the green room in L.A., um, and I had a panic attack. My heart started beating out of my chest. I couldn't catch my breath. I desperately just wanted to leave the the situation. And then, you know, thankfully, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm a double board certified psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I, I started laughing. And I'm like, you treat people who have this problem. <laughs> what do you tell them to <laughs> do? Right. Don't leave breathe, write down your thoughts. And so I wrote down my automatic thoughts. Uh, my first one is you're going to forget your name. Now I've been on television. I don't know. My shows on public television run 110,000 times across North America. Okay. And every time on TV, nobody ever asks me my name. They always know it because, <laughs> you know, they can put the little Chiron underneath my picture. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just such a horrible thought. The next thought I had is you're going to stutter. And then I wrote down two million people are going to think you're an idiot. <laughs> no one's having a panic attack. I mean, these are thoughts that make anybody anxious. And so I corrected those thoughts. You know, I'm not going to forget my name. And if I do, I have my driver's license in my wallet. So that isn't going to happen. I probably won't stutter, but if I do, there'll be stutterers listening to me. They will have a doctor they can relate to. And with the 2 million people think you're an idiot, I wrote probably so. But right next to it, I wrote these three letters or these three numbers, 184060, which is a rule I teach my patients that says when you're 18, you worry about what everybody's thinking of you. When you're 40, you don't give a damn what anybody thinks about you. And when you're 60, you realize no one's been thinking about you at all. People spend their days worrying and thinking about themselves, not you. And so, you know, uh, I was able to calm myself down and then do okay mm -hmm. on television. And since then, I've become pretty good at it. Um, hypnosis and meditation are so helpful for anxiety disorders. When I was hypnotized the first time in medical school, it just was like this warm, peaceful feeling washed over me. And so I became a master hypnotist, uh, which, you know, I often don't talk about now because, you know, I'm more famous for my brain imaging work. And, but I love it. I think it's so powerful 
hypnosis, self-hypnosis, meditation to calm your anxiety centers down. It's a skill they should teach in second grade. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if all of those things don't work, magnesium, gap, theanine, all can work to calm your anxiety and you're never going to be addicted to them. So all six of these things will never hurt you. There's science that shows they will help you. And we can't say that about medication, which unfortunately people go to their family doctor and in a seven minute office visit end up with a sleeping pill, something for depression and something for anxiety. And they don't know once you start them, they actually may be hard to stop. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not opposed to medication uh, and I prescribe it. What I'm opposed to is that's the first and only thing you do. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I love the practical tips. I, I mean, I those are so usable. I I love you know the aspect of when in the middle of an anxiety attack, don't leave because you know then as you said, the anxiety tends to control your behavior, and then you then whenever you have an anxiety attack, you're running out of the room. You know, it's just not practical. So you know, focusing on the breath. And writing things down, you know, I, I never really thought of that, you know, just, just sitting down and writing down, you know, what I'm thinking in that moment. And I think that's really helpful. Um, I, I want to ask, you know, what your thoughts are about the way, I mean, I run a media company and so we, we study this, you know, we study the attention span of human beings, you know, like that's what we're looking at. And what I've noticed is that the attention span of most people has, I don't know what to call it really, other than like de-evolution or just decreased or, you know, because we're so hooked onto our devices and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, you know, what's going on in the brain there? Is that something with the prefrontal cortex? I mean, is this something that could be considered a disability? So ADD has more than quadrupled in our society since I graduated from medical school. And um, I mean, ADD is real. It's a genetic disorder. You get it from your mom or dad. But but it doesn't skyrocket like that unless something is going on in our society. And it's the nonstop fast information that is wearing out our pleasure centers together with the gadgets Hmm. and the video games for kids that is really driving them to require more and more excitement in order to pay attention to anything at all. And that is really problematic for our society. We need to decrease the amount of screen time that children have uh, along with feeding them better. Since the 1980s, sugar has gone way up Hmm. in our society, which decreases your attention span because you get a sugar burst and then your pancreas sees it and produces insulin and it'll drop. You become hypoglycemic, Hmm. which your brain then turns to mud. Hmm. So, so decreasing screen time, just flat out, you know, like I, I have this own process for myself where, uh, I mean, I'm in front of most of us, I think are in front of computers, you know, most of the day, I think for our jobs, I, you know, I'm in front of a, a computer screen most of the time. And so one day a week, I will just have a no screen day where 
you know, I'm not in front of a computer and I have very minimal attachment to, to my phone. So you recommend this. This is, you know, something that, that you, you suggest that we do. Yeah, the more you do it, the better it is for your brain. Otherwise, you know, every time your phone buzzes, you get a little dopamine hit in your basal ganglia. And it's like, oh, I'm paying attention. But, but the more that happens, the more it actually wears out your pleasure centers. Mm-hmm. So pretty soon, you're not going to be feeling anything at all. And, you know, I think the more time children spend with screens, um, the harder it is for them to pay attention. Hmm. Okay. Um, Dr. Eamon, I'm, I'm moving a little bit quick. I hope you don't mind this. You know, I, I want to talk about relationships. I want to talk about what's happening in the brain when, you know, you, you diagnose someone with like love. You know, I've heard, heard this old rumor about how there was a brain imaging scan done on someone in love and then someone with, uh, I don't know, like schizophrenia. And the imaging results were very similar. Is is there any basis or truth to that? Um, Helen Fisher at Rutgers actually did a number of studies. Uh, and I've done uh, some individual people who just fell in love. And it looks like a new hit of cocaine. <laughs> it lights up their basal ganglia just where their pleasure centers are. And people, if you remember the last time you were in love or, or you fell in love, so new love is cocaine hmm. that, uh, you know, you became a little bit obsessed. You couldn't sleep. All you thought about was the other person. The thoughts would loop in your brain. And that's the sort of thing that happens when people are on cocaine. Um, but then over time, love changes to heroin. And where whenever you, you know, when I'm with my wife, I get this warm, pleasurable feeling and I just I feel comfortable um and so love is a drug and that's why kids who have ADD their attention span is just fine in classes or teachers they love mm-hmm. uh, but for regular routine everyday things homework school schoolwork paperwork chores mm-hmm. they can't pay attention at all hmm. Um, you know, there was a question that came in and I, I, we were asked quite a bit about this uh, while we were talking about when we were promoting the show before you came on. Um, you know, what is in spiritual communities and uh, people talk a lot about the pineal gland. And I mean, I, I want to know more. It, you know, what have you discovered about the pineal gland? Is it the source of anything that you can determine? Um Spiritually, it's about the pineal gland. Yes. So, yes, it's really important and is also it's involved with your circadian rhythm and melatonin. And it's a very important part of the brain that you don't want to damage. And head trauma actually can damage it, which can really upset uh, someone's rhythm and sleep. Is is calcification of the pineal gland an actual thing, or is, is that just a rumor? You know, I didn't hear you. Say that again. Calcification? Uh, people talk about, you know, fluoride and this calcification process that happens with the pineal gland, rendering it less active. Have you noticed oh, this? calcification. Sure. T-O-X-I-C? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's a problem with every part of your brain that, uh, and fluoride's an interesting discussion because some of my colleagues think it's toxic, you know, that it becomes, a t uh, and the whole population is loaded with fluoride. Okay. Can you go on, please? I mean, so should we be avoiding fluoride? It seems like there are two different, you know, spectrums of thought on this completely. And, and it, it, it seems like, you know, most people are deciding to avoid it. Yeah, I, I don't think it's been proven safe. And in my mind, if something's not been proven safe, you should avoid it, as opposed to what a lot of companies will say, it's not been proven to be toxic. And I know Joe Mercola um, writes about that a lot in my work, especially in my book, Memory Rescue. I came up with a mnemonic I love called Bright Minds. So if you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it if it's headed to the dark place, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And we know what they are. Um, and so I created a mnemonic called Bright Minds. And the T in Bright Minds stands for toxins. Mm -hmm. And it's just critical. We live in a toxic society and it's not just gadgets and toxic news it's lead and mercury and fluoride and cadmium and arsenic and um did you know 60 percent of the lipstick sold in the united states has lead in it I have no idea. so you can just imagine what's happening to these women as they absorb because whatever you put on your skin goes in your skin Right, your skin is a porous organ. And it's just horrifying to me. There's an app that people can download for free called Think Dirty. Mm -hmm. And it'll let you scan all of your personal products to see, you know, is what's in them helping you or hurting you. And so, for example, soft soap, um, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being bad, was a 10. And that was the bath soap I was using, um, the body wash I was using before I got smart. Hmm. And now I use something called Alafia that I get off of Amazon. Okay. It's made for code. That's a two. And people go, but that's more expensive. And I'm like, well, I'm totally worth it. Do you think being sick is expensive? Being sick is expensive. Or the Barbasol I used to shave with was a 10. <laughs> From the time I was, you know, 15 to 60. And now I get something called Kiss My Face, which is actually cheaper because it lasts 10 times longer. And it's a two. Mm -hmm. So yeah. why do I do that? I do it because I love myself and I pay attention to the toxic world that we're living in. And I grew up in L.A. in the San Fernando Valley. And... I remember we couldn't go play outside because of smog days that mm -hmm. when you breathe, um, you get particulate matter in your lungs and it would hurt. And, you know, so that meant I spent the first 18 years of my life around air pollution. And that's a bad thing. And there are studies showing air pollution is associated with dementia. And with accelerated aging, oh, no, I'm not okay mm -hmm. with 
Go, go on. Well, if you're concerned about toxicity, uh-huh. it's my five-point plan. Decrease your exposure as much as possible. So I live in Newport Beach. The air quality here is so much better. Um, and then support the four organs of detoxification. Your kidneys, drink more water. But be careful of plastic water bottles. Um, your gut, eat more fiber because fiber helps to detoxify your system. Mm -hmm. Liver, stop drinking alcohol. Alcohol is not a health food and it's just not good for you. It actually increases the risk of seven different kinds of cancer and can upset your microbiome, the bugs in your gut. Um, And then sweat. With either exercise or infrared saunas, there's research that shows people who take the most saunas have the lowest incidence of both depression and Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. So, I mean, there was a chapter in your book where there was a patient, you know, uh, there, there was a relationship and the person was very aggressive in that relationship. And uh, there was a question that you posed that perhaps, you know, he was just being poisoned and the the aggression symptoms that he was showing was just a reaction to these chemicals that were in his diet. So, I mean, you know, what kind of diet do you recommend? There seems to be so many different lines, veins of thought, you know, regarding this, like meat is bad for you, some people think. And you know, so how do we find a balance with our diet and what we're eating? Well, just think two words, real food. Something that was either grown in healthy soil or was raised to eat from healthy soil. So I think of healthy food as calorie smart. Calories really do matter. People don't want to believe it, but it's true. That is both nutritious and delicious. So think of colorful fruits and vegetables, healthy protein, and do not scrimp on fat. Now, you want to make it healthy fat, avocados, nuts and seeds, uh, fish, uh, sustainably raised fish. Um, If you make your diet, think of a plate, 70% of it plant-based foods, 30% high-quality protein mixed in that, a lot of healthy fat. That's how we should be eating at every meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, sugar cereals in the morning, seriously. I mean, it's a weapon of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. And you look down the cereal aisle, it's a whole aisle dedicated to death. <laughs> or look at the soda aisle. It's a whole nother aisle dedicated to death. So true. And you know, I mean, when you understand it, I think 50% of the mental health issues I see are related to the bad food we eat, that happy meals aren't happy. But we're brainwashed as a society. Coke comes out. What's Coke's slogan? Open happiness. Hmm. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Not when you understand the science. The science is that is open illness. Or McDonald's, you deserve a break today. Well, is that really what you're going to get when you eat at McDonald's? It's like, no, you deserve illness. It's like, no, I don't. I don't want illness. And I want us to be thinking about what we, what goes in our body becomes 
our body. And there's a study from Australia, fascinating, where they looked at two outer islands. One of them had fast food restaurants. The other one didn't. And what they did is they looked at the omega-3 fatty acid levels in the population and they looked at the, the uh, amount of depression. And what they found, the island with fast food restaurants had dramatically lower omega-3 fatty acids in their blood and five times the level of depression. Five hmm. wow. times the level of depression. It's the food. Mm, yeah. Wow, it's incredible. I mean, it seems obvious, but, you know, it. hearing you say it, I think, is is that, you know, much more hitting. I think it, it's important to hear, you know, someone of your authority, you know, talking about this. And there was a question that came in uh, in the chat here. Alicia asks, um, you know, what supplements that can we use that what do you what supplements do you recommend for you know healthy brain so i recommend everybody take a multiple vitamin just because we have vitamin deficiencies in this country that are outrageous everybody should take omega-3 fatty acids because we're deficient in them you should get your vitamin d level checked and supplement with vitamin d if it's low and then I have a brain health assessment for free. People can take online, brainhealthassessment.com, and it'll tell you which of your 16 brain types you have. And then we recommend supplements based on your type. So if you're a spontaneous type, you need more dopamine. And so we have supplements to naturally raise dopamine. If you're a persistent type, you need more serotonin. And we have supplements that can help that. If you're a cautious or a sensitive type, we have supplements targeted to your brain uh, rather than take this or take that. But I'm a huge believer, multiple vitamin, fish oil, vitamin D if you need it, and then directed toward your type. What about a nootropics, smart drugs? Um, it's interesting because if you have ADD, that something like Adderall can actually be really helpful mm -hmm. for you, and I'm not opposed to it. I'm opposed to that's the only thing you do. Um, but if you don't have ADD, in fact, it will actually make you worse and mm -hmm. it will disrupt brain function. Um, there are other ones like paracetam, paracetam. and uh, adrophenil. Um, um, and, and I would rather people really work on getting their diet, exercise, sleep right rather than rely on a substance unless they've been able to look at their brain. And then, oh, it's like you have sleepy frontal lobes. Let's pop those up. Try first with supplements. And if those don't work, we'll use medication. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you. Um, let's talk about the mystical experience, Dr. Eamon, if, if we can. Um, you know, the, the good drugs, uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, ayahuasca, been used in their therapy, therapeutic sessions, uh, 
uh, MAPS is using MDMA with uh, PTSD assisted therapy. What's your position on those types of compounds and, and people? Well, it's certainly getting a lot of attention. And what really concerns me is the two big advances in psychiatry in the last couple of years is legalizing marijuana and using hallucinogens in psychotherapy. And there's no mention of looking at people's brains and getting their brains healthy. So in my mind, those are way lower options. So, you know, I think of them as 12th to 20th options. Um, And it's like, well, let's just do the simple things first. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we have evidence that ketamine will hurt you if it's not the right thing for you, that marijuana increases the risk of anxiety, depression, and suicide if you start using it as a teenager, that it disrupts white matter development in the brain. And I did a before and after study on Ibogaine which is a hallucinogen used sometimes for addiction. Mm-hmm. And it completely made the guy's brain look worse. Wow. I was, and, I, and I was pretty irritated because he was doing it for a documentary. And I had scanned him five times. And his brain was terrible when I first met him. And then it was better. And then it was better. And then it was just freaking perfect. And But he wanted to do it for the documentary. And when I scanned him as follow-up after I began, it disrupted the progress that we had made. Oh, my. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people. There's, there's a book. Michael Pollan wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like. Would you really want to go there before you got their diet right? Does that really make any like logical sense to you? It certainly doesn't to me. So there's, I mean, there's no magic bullet. There's no magic pill that you can take. It, it's not going to be this instant process. And jumping into, you know, taking psychedelic drugs to treat these underlying issues. And in, in your experience with the brain scans, they're actually showing that, that the brain is worse. Um, food is sort of a magic bullet in that my wife and I did a course. So we have a university, Amen University. If you like this stuff, we love teaching it. And together, she and I did a 26-hour course over six months called The Brain Warrior's Way, based on a book we wrote. And... We had 25,000 people sign up the first week. And the stories of transformation throughout those six months we taught the class were so special from people not only losing a lot of weight, but their anxiety dropped 30%. Their pain levels dropped. Their moods improved. Their sleep improved. When you learn to get your habits right, in that bright minds way that I discussed, your life changes for the better. And, you know, my new book coming out next year called The End of Mental Illness begins with a revolution in brain health. And so the magic bullet habit, if you will, I worked with a group at Stanford 
um, BJ Fogg, and he he ran the persuasive tech lab at Stanford okay. on how people change. And he said, generally, they don't make all the changes at once. They start with little tiny habits. And so he and I worked together for six months on the tiny habit for brain health. And it's so simple. And here it is. Whenever you come to a decision point in your day. So I'm going to go eat dinner soon. Whenever you come to a decision point in your day, Mm -hmm. all you have to do is ask yourself this question. Is it good for my brain or bad for it? Mm-hmm. Is it good for my brain or bad for it? And if you can answer that question, not out of habit, but out of intelligence and love, you'll do the right thing. And, and I say love because you, sh- you shouldn't do things, right? I'm not a fan of should and must and ought to and have to. I'm a fan of I do the right thing because I love myself. I love my mission. I love my wife. I love my four kids. I love my five grandkids. I love the people I work with. I want to be here. And I know the statistics, and they're horrifying. 50% of people 85 and older will be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia. So if you're blessed to live to 85, You have a one in two chance. You have a 50% chance of having lost your mind. I mean, I don't know about you, Xavier, but I'm not okay with that. And I can't be thinking about that when I'm 83. I need to be thinking about it when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I'm 60. I need to love my brain because when I love my brain, I love my life. And so the little tiny habit, the smallest thing you can do today that will give you the biggest bang is go throughout your day. Just ask yourself, is my behavior, what am, this decision, good for my brain or bad for it? Mm-hmm. It's very simple. It's a very simple question to ask yourself. And then you should get a very direct answer. And then if you're still, if you're still fighting that, then you know, that is something you need to work on, right? So, you know, Dr. Eamon, I, I want to I want to ask you about something that I learned about a long time ago. I'm wondering if I mean, I'm sure you know about this. Uh, what about binaural beats or hemispheric synchronization? Have you heard of this? You know, I didn't hear. I'm sorry. Binaural it- beats or hemispheric oh, synchronization. Beats. Yes. Hemispheric. Yeah, I actually like it. I've been a fan of it for almost 30 years. Okay. That it's- on a concept called entrainment. Your brain picks up the rhythm in the environment. And when you introduced me, and um, you didn't say that I have three albums out, uh, music albums. My apologies. uh, Brain Warrior's Way, uh, Bright Minds uh, for Memory Rescue, and Feel Better Fast and Make It Last. And they have all been on the Billboard's New Age charts our music for bright minds 44 weeks in fact in i guess it was 2018 i was the number six uh, billboard artist of the year in the new age category and we have been creating music to optimize brain function for years and we use rhythm to help your brain be happier less anxious more focused to help you sleep. So there's tracks on all of our albums for 
um, those kinds of things because the music you listen to matters, you know, can directly impact your brain. Mm-hmm. And just to answer you with uh, the introduction, I, want, I had to shorten it down and you're so, you're so highly <laughs> yes. acclaimed. I, I mean, I, I had to I had to trim out some of it. That was there. <laughs> but, um, okay, so uh, Alicia has another question as far as binaural beats go and hemispheric synchronization. Can you apply this if it's only going into one ear, if you're deaf in the other ear? And I mean, it, does it work with both ears? Well, it's not going to work with both ears, but the rhythm you listen to is also impacting your brain. And so certain music will make you happier, will make you more anxious, will help you sleep or keep you awake. And so the quality and rhythm of the music really does matter. Binaural beats, though, need to go on both sides. Mm. Oh, okay, so it would not be effective if it was just going on to one side. Correct. Okay. Um, you know, I want to get into, I know time is running short here, but I want to get into addictive behaviors, uh, addiction, and what that looks like under a brain imaging scan and what your experience with that is. I mean, can you talk about different forms, different levels of addiction and and how we can you know, be better at recognizing that in our behavior? So I wrote a book with David Smith, who's the founder of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, called Unchain Your Brain, Breaking the Addictions That Steal Your Life. And I'm very proud of that book. And what we argue, so you know you're an addict when you engage in behavior that gets you into trouble and you do it again. Um, it's like you don't learn that these behaviors get you in trouble in your relationships, your money, the law, or your health. And what we discovered through imaging is all addicts are not the same. They're impulsive addicts, often have ADD. They're compulsive addicts. They're sad addicts, anxious addicts, addicts that occurred after a traumatic brain injury, and then all sorts of combinations with that basic type. And the brain type test that I talked about at brainhealthassessment.com, brainhealthassessment.com, you can actually know, well, what's your type so that you can target the treatment to the type. You know, I just saw Brad Pitt came out and said he went to AA. So that's public knowledge. And, and I was really proud of him because I'm a huge fan of AA. As long as you don't go to a meeting where they're poisoning you with donuts and cake and, you know, bad coffee and so on. Um, But it's more complicated than that. It's like, well, what's the brain of an addict look like and how can you heal their brain to ultimately heal their life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much there, so much to unpack with this this episode. We covered so much. I, I've got a couple more questions for you if you're up for it, Doctor Eamon. I I, I want to ask you, you know, what were what was some of the biggest lessons? I mean, I know that you did one of the world's largest brain imaging databases. So, I mean, what were what were the main things that you were seeing in in those imaging scans? Well, we talked about one, how mild traumatic brain injury ruins people's lives and nobody knows about it. Protect your head. You know, I think the biggest lesson and, you know, the most important lesson 
that I talked about in my TED talk is that you're not stuck with the brain you have, that you can make it better. I can prove it. And that's what drives me every day. And I know if my behavior is right today, my brain will be better tomorrow. And if my behavior is not right today, my brain will not be as healthy tomorrow. And I just find that to be so hopeful, uplifting, exciting, is that I can make this better. And even if I've been bad to my brain, so we didn't talk much about the work I do with the NFL, hmm. I've scanned and treated 300 NFL players, and the level of damage is really high. So stop lying about it. It's a brain-damaging profession. Um, don't let your kids play football. I'm not kidding. It increases the risk of damage to their life. Hmm. Um, but 80% of my players get better in as little as two months just by doing the right things, the right brain-healthy things, the right supplements, and so on. And and that's the story I will talk about until I'm not around anymore is you're not stuck with the brain you have. You can make it better. Choose to do the right thing because everything else in your life will be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. You know, Dr. Amen, I just, I just want to give you a chance, you know, to address the people while we, we're here. If there's anything that you want to tell people maybe that are struggling with depression, anxiety, panic, just different disorders, you know, uh, what would you say to someone that's listening to the show and, and looking for, you know, uh, something direct? So I would tell them, go get my new book feel better fast and make it last. And I know I talk about a lot of books, but there's not one person who ever came to me that wanted to feel better slowly. And so I went, well, what are the quickest ways you can feel better while you're putting brain healthy habits into your life? And they're just, there's so many things, but you know, if you're feeling depressed, I want you to start every day. When your feet hit the floor in the morning, go, today is going to be a great day. And then your unconscious mind will find why it's going to be a great day, and it just sets you up for more success. And at the end of every day, um, what I do is when my head hits the pillow, I say a prayer. And then I just go through my day with this question, what went well today? And it's amazing. Every night, and I've been doing this for years, every night I'm surprised by the awesome things that happened during my day that I didn't know about, that I didn't remember consciously. And what that does is it actually sets your dreams up to be more positive. And if you get more positive dreams, it also generally means more REM sleep. Your brain's going to be cleaner and healthier the next day which means when you say to yourself, today is going to be a great day, you're actually going to be able to make that happen. Absolutely. Dr. Amonet, I'm so happy to have had you here on the show. We'd love to have you back. You're welcome back anytime. Where can people go to you know, find your work, your website? So they can listen to our podcast. We've done 450 of them. Isn't mm. that cool? called the Brain Warriors Way podcast, brainwarriorswaypodcast.com, or you can find it on Apple and Stitcher. Um, go to amonclinics.com to learn about our clinical work 
or brainmd.com uh, to learn about our supplements and our educational programs, uh, also Amen University. And I'm so grateful, Xavier, for the opportunity that you offered uh, so that I could share my work with your audience. Oh, that's The pleasure's all mine, sir. Um, guys, that's going to do it for us here. Dr. Amen, hang tight while I just do this close really quick. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, what a phenomenal listen. I mean, so much information that we covered and so much for you to think about. I mean, I would even recommend going back and listening to this twice. Definitely check out, you know, Dr. Amen's work and, and you know, find out for yourself, you know, what's going on with your, your brain and what you can do and need to do for yourself to, to make it better. Um, we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening.